Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. When they're fleeing war and violence, many refugees dream that moving to the United States would be like going to heaven. Well, as you may imagine, what often happens is a totally different story. Blair Sackett and Annette Leroux tell the stories of families that have resettled from the Democratic Republic of the Congo in their new book, We Thought It Would Be Heaven, Refugees in an Unequal America. It's published by the University of California Press and brings Blair Sackett and Annette Leroux to our show now. Welcome. Hey, thanks for having us. It's great to be here. Well, there are two. There are two of you, so um, you know, jump in whenever uh, you feel like you, you would prefer to answer the question. But I'll begin with Blair, uh, just because I have to begin with one of you. <laughs> you did observations with four refugee families from the Democratic Republic of Congo who'd been resettled in Philadelphia and then conducted follow-up interviews five years later. Were their stories and experiences similar? Yeah, so um, that's a, a great point. Yeah, so I, as you mentioned, I did, um, I got to know four Congolese families right after they had arrived to Philadelphia and spent time in their houses, um, followed them um, when they went to the grocery store, hung out with friends, their caseworkers came over, and, and really as they faced challenges and, and had successes in the United States. And so we found that um, some things were similar across the families. They were all new to U.S. schools. They had to learn um how schools worked, how um, how to pay rent in the U.S., how to navigate taxes, mm. how to use the subway, and and all of those were were new for all of the families. Um, but we did also find a lot of differences across their experiences. Um, while some families really had trouble. Um, meeting these obstacles, others um, had help and, and were able to um, get ahead. And we'll get into that as we continue this conversation. But why Philadelphia in particular? Is it just where you were? a great question. Um, so it was convenient where I was, but Philadelphia is also a really important city. Um, it's It's been termed a re-emerging immigrant gateway. But it's also known as a a welcoming city for immigrants and refugees. So so in a lot of ways, what we're looking at is is sort of a best case scenario um, and seeing the challenges that emerge even in in places that are welcoming for immigrants and refugees. Annette, you begin the book with the story of Honoria and her five children, or is it Honoria? Didn't her story as a refugee begin in 2000? We're talking about a long history here. Yes, she was a deeply religious woman, and she had gone to church that morning for a sunrise service, and she came back to hear gunfire. Hmm. And people were fleeing around her, and her child was with her husband. And she started to move away from the gunfire, and she saw a police officer and he said, run. This is in, in Congo. This right. is in the Congo. That's mm-hmm. right. And he said, don't look back or you will be killed. Hmm. 
And so she walked and ran and crossed the border and ultimately ended up in a refugee camp. And did her husband and, and child survive? No, they did not. So she established a new life in this UN refugee camp in Uganda and remarried and had five children? Yeah, I'll let Blair, Blair take it over from here, yes. Yeah, that's correct. So she um, she only found out that her husband and, and child had, had died once she reached the refugee camp and others who had seen them um, were there. Um, and so over time, slowly, she was registered as a refugee with the United Nations. Um, and she received really meager but important um, food from aid organizations and and started farming. She had been a farmer back in the Congo and in the Uganda, in Uganda, she was given some land. Um, she met a new husband and remarried. She had five more kids um, and, and sort of her she got by on these um, on what she could farm and then the little bit of money she could earn by selling some extra vegetables. So she remarried, had five children. How long did she struggle to survive in the refugee camp before she and her children were selected for resettlement in the United States? I believe it was 16 years. So wow. she was there for quite a long time. Yeah. But her husband wasn't selected. Why? Yeah, so there's... there's um, when the UN processes refugee families for resettlement, they're on a, a case, a case file with the family that shares a similar story. Um, and the families often resettled together. And her husband was on a separate case. Um, he was eventually resettled later, um, but not until several years after. And, and this is sort of um, common for a lot of families who become spread across borders when they're split across different resettlement cases. Were they able to reunite? They were able to reunite eventually, although he was resettled. When refugees are resettled to the U.S., they don't choose where they're going to um, arrive in the U.S. Um, so she was resettled to Philadelphia. And when he was eventually resettled, it was to North Carolina. Um, so they eventually did um, reunite, although things were a little bit fraught and they came in and out of each other's lives. Were they what are called documented immigrants? Yeah, and this, this is in some ways scholars think of refugees as the most documented immigrants. Um, so even from the time Honoria arrived in the refugee camp, the United Nations gave her official documentation. And this was based on interviews and, and also expert knowledge of the conflict um, and, and where her experience fit. And then um, in, in being resettled, um, Refugees undergo um, background checks and security vetting and are, in many ways are the most vetted immigrants when they arrive to our country. So it's very different from what happens to the people who cross the border from Mexico to Texas. Yeah, absolutely. Particularly their experiences in how they reach the United States. Um, and for those who come as refugees, they they receive assistance from the government as well once they arrive. And the family said years later, we thought it would be heaven. 
which gave you the title of your book. It didn't turn out that way. Yeah, and and so uh, many of the families we talked to, um, after years of facing hardship, sometimes decades, like honoria, in refugee camps, making by with scarce resources, they really thought that um, resettlement would was sort of like hitting the lottery. They hoped that finally um, the U.S. government was indicating they wanted them here and that um, coming to the U.S. would be like arriving in heaven. Um, and so while they continued, even after they arrived, to see the U.S. as a place of a land of opportunity, they were also faced very quickly with a stark reality that the United States is also a land of inequality. Hmm. Um, and so they were really struck by the poverty they immediately saw um, when they arrived in the country. Well, when they arrived at the airport in Philadelphia, they were greeted by a federally funded caseworker who spoke Swahili. That, And he has one of the oddest names of anybody I've seen kind of godlike. Is it Zeus? Yeah, yeah. Zeus. <laughs> well, I should mention... The king of the gods. The, yeah, exactly. So all of the names are um, pseudonyms. Oh, um, I see. To, okay. Yeah, to protect the identities of, of those who shared um, their lives with us. Um, but yeah, we, we thought naming him Zeus was fitting in many ways because of the really crucial work mm -hmm. he was doing helping these families when they first arrive. Um, many come with limited or no English ability and, and are really newcomers, right? It's a huge task to come to a new country as as anyone who's who's traveled maybe to a another country, another culture, um, having somebody there who speaks your language, who's familiar with the systems is really crucial. Well, they'd lived in the refugee camp in Uganda where English is one of the languages. Could anyone in the family speak English? Yeah, so that's a there were a few families we interviewed who um, had some English and, and many of the kids knew some small phrases. Um, how are you um, and, and basics like that. Um, but even among those who were more educated in back in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, French is the common lingua franca, not yeah. English. So even is among this those the form people, of Belgian Congo. Yeah, uh, yeah. So it was colonized by the Belgian. Hmm. Mm -hmm. And and French is spoken in Belgium, so that's what happened there. So they spoke Swahili and French. Yeah, and, and many people spoke a, a large number of languages. Some people spoke um, seven languages, multiple hmm. lingua francas in the area, Lingala, um, as well as some more local ethnic languages like Bembe. Um, so these were people who were very used to crossing cultures um, and, and were very good at learning languages and used to very diverse language areas. Do either of you speak Swahili? I speak Swahili, yeah. Um, conversational, advanced conversational Swahili. Um, How did you learn I, it? Yeah, I had studied abroad in Kenya um, when I was a college student, 
and I had a really great um, Swahili professor and, and kind of kept with it after that and took more classes um, when I was getting my doctorate at the University of Pennsylvania. So that helped in putting this book together. It did. And, and even that was initially how I got connected with the families while I was in an advanced Swahili class. Um, that was the same time that there was um, a push to to resettle Congolese refugees to the U.S. So since 2016, they've been the largest nationality group to be resettled to the U.S. And when they started arriving, um, there weren't a lot of Swahili speakers, um, particularly already in resettlement agencies who were ready to translate and, and take on that work. Um, so one of the resettlement agencies reached out to my Swahili teacher and, and was looking for folks who could help translate. I'm speaking with Annette LaRoe and Blair Sackett about their book, We Thought It Would Be Heaven, Refugees in an Unequal America, published by the University of California Press. This is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, and streaming live at WBAI.org. Now, you've both published books on your own. What led you to collaborate on this one? Well, I when I was teaching at Penn and Blair I identify was yourselves. Yeah, okay. I'm sorry, I'm Annette LaRoe yeah. and I'm a faculty member at uh, okay. Penn University of Pennsylvania. And Blair Sackett was a very talented uh, uh, graduate student, and she needed to take a class on research methods before she went to Kenya to do her dissertation research. And I had done a book called Unequal Childhoods, where I had visited families in their home with research assistants, usually every day for three weeks. And so I was giving her advice on how to do family observations. But Blair speaks Swahili. She did all the research for the book. Hmm. Aren't refugees to the United States given meager resources and expected to become self-supporting within 90 days, three months? That's correct. Um, and um, so in some countries... Um, Canada and Australia, you cite. Exactly. Have um, support for much longer, maybe a year, even three years. Um, in the United States, and, and even in the past in the United States, support was given for a much longer time. Um, but in recent years, um, the sort of standard is, is 90 days. So they receive help from a caseworker like Zeus, who you mentioned, um, to do everything such as um, medical appointments, enroll their children in schools, get a driver's license or an identification card, open a bank account. Um, one of the things we were really struck by is just how many different things um, these newcomer families have to do at once. And, and there's so many different organizations that they have to learn about and and begin to navigate, all while trying to get a job and, and figure out how to support themselves and their family. Are these people aware of the differences when they're in the refugee camp? Because if, if I were in a refugee camp and had an opportunity to leave, wouldn't I choose Canada or Australia as my preferred destination? 
Yeah. Um, you know, the the families don't have a choice in what country um, selects them for resettlement. So who, who it, does the country or the UN? Um, it's a combination of both. the The United Nations um, kind of creates and processes cases that they know fit eligibility requirements. Um, that they think would be a case that the United States or, or another country would accept. Um, and then the United States or those countries um, do their own vetting process um, with stringent security requirements. And what are they looking for? Obviously, people who might be able to fit into the, to the, uh, the, the American system, right? So in the United States, um, refugee resettlement is is often based on priority um, re, um, priority groups, and particularly um, need. So so really, um, refugee resettlement cases are for those who faced persecution and and have this sort of refugee status because they faced persecution, they fled from war, and and crucially, they're not able to return home. Um, The United States often prioritizes cases with humanitarian special concerns, um, folks who might need medical attention or have a disability, that their life would be improved um, by coming to the United States, that they're not able to receive that care in the refugee camp. Um, and also those who might still face discrimination in the country of asylum, in the refugee camp, whether it be ethnic discrimination or some other kind of persecution. Well, as people of color, they're going to face some discrimination in this country, aren't they? Yeah, that was one of the really shocks for a lot of the families coming to the United States it was learning about the country, but also learning that they were seen as black in the United States and that um, what it means to be black in this country. With an accent. Uh, yeah, with an accent. So what it means to be often Congolese and an immigrant, uh, an African, um, and to be black and, and to na- how to navigate that. Um, in particular, Uh, The families were stunned um, by the killing of George Floyd and and other really terrible instances of police violence. Um, And they they identified with those instances. And and um, after fleeing war and, and state violence in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, they were really stunned. Um, Elaine, one of the refugees, said, why here we came to the U.S., we thought we had refuge and why in this place of refuge do we still have to find this violence? Do the children tend to find it easier to adapt than the adults? Yeah, the the children and adults definitely had um, some some different experiences. Um, Children often were enrolled in schools and, and for many of the kids, they were um, the only Congolese students in their class. Um, so they so were they exotic. Had, yeah, and and um, and sometimes felt a lot were bullied for that, and and were just often really um, overwhelmed having to suddenly navigate 
a whole day of class and interacting with other students and teachers in a language that they didn't know. In the stories of struggle and hope that you relate here, one volunteer said, you see the American story. What was he saying there? Well, he, this is Annette Leroux from Penn. Hmm. He was saying that everybody, the American dream of people achieving upward mobility is a very powerful dream. And, and the families came from very desperate circumstances. One of the families had five children be born and die in the refugee camp. Hmm. And so for them to come, even though they were in low-wage work and at the poverty level, they had opportunities, and in some cases, they were able to buy a house, particularly the families that had a faith, had volunteers helping them, faith-based, church-based volunteers helping them, and also, in some cases, their children went to college. Now, you focus on uh, four refugee families, but didn't you also research and do in-depth interviews with 45 additional Congolese refugee families. Were they all fleeing war and violence? Yeah, yeah, so we did, um, we have the four families we focus on and then we did interviews with um, 40 additional Congolese refugee families. And those families um, shared the same experiences of fleeing war. Um, many of them also spent time in refugee camps in Uganda and Burundi, um, in Tanzania. And so they had this shared background. Um, and, and we found that um, many of them shared experiences of the families in that we feature in the book and and go into more depth. Um, some of them, they all faced obstacles arriving, and but some of them, as Annette mentioned, were were eventually able to um, buy homes and send their kids to college. But should I assume that uh, most of them entering American entered American society at the bottom? Yeah. And and one thing that Annette and I were both really um, surprised to learn when we started this research, when refugees are resettled to the U.S., um, international organizations in the, the United States all um, help arrange for flights and, and arriving in the U.S., but um, these families arrive in debt. They owe back the cost of their plane ticket. And for many of these Really? Families, They're expected to pay for that plane ticket? Wow. Yeah, the tickets are a loan. Um, so before they get on the plane, they sign a form saying that they'll pay back um, the cost of their tickets over time. So these families arrive in debt. Um, so they're not just starting at zero, they're starting from behind. And then, as you mentioned, they arrive and and they um, realize they're black in America, a country with racial inequality. Many of them have to they have to find jobs within 90 days. So they don't have time to um, go to a year of English classes and, and master the language before getting a job. Instead, they're thrown into low-wage work, often grueling jobs like um, working at meatpacking factories, um, working in warehouses where electronic um, orders are processed to be mailed out. So the packages you arrive are often um, 
these refugee families are, are working hard to get them to you. Um, but these are jobs that are really tough. And so and, and a lot of um, long working hours and, and really grueling. So these are just there through work alone. It's tough for these families to get ahead. So do any of them go on welfare? So when families arrive, um, refugee families, they're eligible for um, benefits from the U.S. government. And this is really key. They have access to the U.S. safety net. And we found that when families were able to receive these resources, it really boosted their long-term um, progress. Um, so even with working a lot of hours, many of the families still qualified for government assistance because the jobs were so low wage, right? Even working a lot, they didn't have enough to support themselves. Um, moreover, we found that even among those who received benefits, who were eligible, who didn't, um, who weren't making um, enough money to live, they had a really hard time actually um accessing these benefits, we found that there are a lot of hurdles um, from really complicated paperwork and recertification forms um, to, to actually getting these resources that they really needed. Would it have been different if they had been fleeing war in Ukraine? Yeah, that's a great question. And in, in, in the United States, um, Ukrainian refugees are coming through a different process, right? The, the U.S. government made a temporary protected status with a separate system for Ukrainian refugees. And, and for one thing, this was, this was an improvement in that um, Ukrainians were able to arrive really quickly, right? Many of them um, left Ukraine, and, and it wasn't the case that they waited for decades in a refugee camp. Um, like the families we did research with. So that's a real significant difference. Um, well, some of them go to refugee camps in Poland and Hungary. Sure, absolutely, absolutely. So, um, and, But I think that I assume they have a number of advantages. First of all, people are more sympathetic to them. They're white. Uh, mm -hmm. Their story is in the news all the time. We don't hear much about what's going on in Africa in this country other than somebody was uh, assassinated, some leader was assassinated. Yeah, that's that's absolutely correct. And, and um, the conflict in the Democratic Republic of the Congo um, that these families were fleeing was was one of the most deadly um, wars since World War II. And that's that's really not something that's widely known. And and the Congolese refugees mentioned um, that often people they felt that people misunderstood their backgrounds. They didn't know a lot about what it was like to be African. They assumed that all of the families came from um, the jungle. Mm -hmm. Right. They, they felt like um, people didn't realize there were cities and, and a more um, diverse background. But really, in some ways, their experiences um, 
as refugees, but refugees that aren't always making the headlines is is common. Um, just one percent of the world's refugees globally are resettled. And so there there are really many conflicts around the world that aren't getting the attention um, that's deserved and that's needed. So despite all the problems that these people face, in a way, they uh, had an advantage over other refugees. Absolutely. Yeah. And even many of those who who make it to the U.S. have many family members who who didn't um, friends and relatives who are still back in um some who are still back facing conflict and instability back in the Democratic Republic of the Congo and some who are still in refugee camps. And and the stark reality is that most people never make it um, to a resettlement country. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. I hope you're enjoying my conversation with Blair Sackett and Annette Leroux. If you sign up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more, you can receive a free copy of their book, We Thought It Would Be Heaven. Just go online to give to WBAI.org or call 212-209-2950 during today's show. And we will be happy to send you a copy. That's give and then the number 2, WBAI.org, or 212-209-2950. But don't forget to make that $50 donation or more in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large. And we thank you very much. And return now to Blair Sackett, who is a postdoctoral fellow at the Watson Institute for International and Public Affairs at Brown University, and Annette Leroux, who's a professor of sociology at the University of Pennsylvania. They've both written other books, and now we are discussing uh, the one that they have collaborated on called We Thought It Would Be Heaven, Refugees in an Unequal America, published by the University of California Press. Now, um, Honoria and her children were housed in a cramped two-bedroom apartment. Um, is that typical as well? You just find the the uh, the first place you can stick people because they were a lot. That was a large family, and two bedrooms really meant being jammed all together. Yeah. So when Honoria arrived, she came as a single mother with her five kids. Hmm. And they, um, a caseworker found an apartment for them in Philadelphia um, in a traditionally immigrant neighborhood um, that had had Vietnamese refugees um, arrive before them. But one of the challenges in in finding housing for these newly arrived families, people like Honoria and her children, is that housing's really expensive in the United States. And so families are are 
um, get by on very limited resources. Um, as I mentioned, most find low-wage jobs. And so caseworkers are really looking for affordable housing that families will be able to pay the rent. And this is really not easy. Um, particularly for a large family and and um, particularly for those with disabilities. Um, Malu Malu, another um, Congolese refugee. Who lived in uh, the same building, right? With their children. He was in the same building upstairs. He arrived with his wife and eight children. And he um, had a disability. His his right um, leg was amputated just below the hip. And this was a challenge back in the refugee camp, but but interestingly, um, there weren't a lot of stairs, and and he could get around pretty well. When he arrived to Philadelphia, most housing is in row houses in upstairs, so his caseworkers found him an apartment just to get up to the front door. Had four concrete stairs with a kind of. Um, raggedy uh, metal, uh, flimsy metal railing. And um, to find housing, affordable housing for a family of 10 in Philadelphia is challenging. To find one without any stairs was near impossible, his caseworkers told us. So to get up to his, he had to go up two flights of stairs to get to his apartment. Oh boy, they couldn't have found a place for an elevator. Right. That that would be helpful. But they they couldn't it was they were priced out of um, amenities like an elevator. And then there was a third family also living in that building. There was another family nearby. Yeah. Yeah. Were their stories Uh, similar? I mean, other than the fact that uh, one of these uh, the men was an amputee. Mm hmm. I mean, so were, of, were their stories back home similar? Were they all yeah. part of all part of the same ethnic group that was being dis, that was being discriminated against in in Congo? It's a great question, and and because of the the nature of conflict, actually, um, so Honoria and Malu Malu are from two different families, and they live in the same building, but they're also from two different ethnic groups, mm-hmm. and. These were while while they had um, positive relationships between the two of them and and didn't hold discriminatory viewpoints. Um, they were from opposing sides of the conflict, hmm. right? And so Honoria's um, family members had been killed by the opposing ethnic group, and and Malu Malu was from that other side. That also meant that their native ethnic language was different. So while they could communicate in Swahili, sometimes this um, was a barrier for families in in developing really close relationships with other Congolese. So from an as an outsider, you know, we might think, oh, they're all Congolese. Mm-hmm. So so maybe they can help each other and create a sense of community. But you did see we found there was some at least sensitive um, relationships and could be challenges in forming really close ties. And then the fourth family you deal with is the Msafiri family. Am I pronouncing yeah. it correctly? Yeah. Alon what was their and, story? Alon and Vanna 
Um, so they also fled conflict in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, and and they really um, they married across ethnic group lines, and so they fell in love. And at the time, um, ethnic tensions were were there, but there was no active conflict. But nonetheless, their families both opposed the marriage. They went ahead and and got married, but then when conflict erupted, this inter-ethnic marriage became um, became a real threat. Um, they reported that they knew it was time to leave when members of each ethnic group um, and and sort of um, rebels in each ethnic group set up roadblocks and they would check each person going by to see what ethnic group they were a member of. And so any inner ethnic connection made them really vulnerable um, to this emerging conflict. So had they also been in the refugee camp? They, they fled to a refugee camp across the border with their um, two small children. Um, they also lived in this this camp for, um, I believe it was close to 15 years. Wow. And... Um, but they, they found that ethnic tensions continued in the camp because members of both sides of the ethnic group fled to the camp. And they're, again, their inter-ethnic marriage um, made them vulnerable for discrimination. Um, so they were relieved to finally reach the United States where they had... Um, a chance to leave behind some of those tensions. Although, as I mentioned, Alan is the um, was the he he really remarked on um, finding racial tension in the U.S. and racialized violence really disheartening after thinking that the U.S. would be a place of refuge where he could um, move beyond some of this interethnic tension. What did they do at the refugee camps during the day? Did they work? Yeah, so this is um, a great question. In, in I'm, I'm working on another book on, on similar questions, but in some countries, refugees are allowed to work, and in some countries, um, they're not legally allowed to work. So they just are they're, uh, sustained by the U.N.? Yeah, so that's that's what, um, in part, the UN gives food rations, but but families across the board are are very clear that it's not enough to live off of. Um, so many families find work in informal jobs. Some families are actually some folks are hired by the aid organizations for really small stipends, maybe forty dollars a month, um, to help run, um, to give out food, to provide counseling for other refugees in the camp. And um, Vanna worked as a teacher in one of the UN-run schools in the camp. She had been a teacher back in the Congo, and then in the camp she got a job as a teacher again. My guests on today's Let It Lopate at Large are Blair Sackett and Annette Leroux. Their book, We Thought It Would Be Heaven, Refugees in an Unequal America, from the University of California Press. This is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, and streaming live at WBAI.org. As you mentioned, you talked with aid workers and volunteers, 35 of them. What did they tell you about the problems they face? 
Yeah, that's a great question. So we found that volunteers could be extremely helpful for families, particularly when they're supplementing um, really strong programs. Um, And so for them, many of the volunteers brought their own um, professional experiences and experiences in their own family life. So some of the volunteers were um, teachers and nurses and real estate agents and And so many of them drew on this knowledge to help refugee families understand what classes their children needed to be in to have enough credits to graduate from high school and how to schedule a doctor's appointment and what kinds of information the doctor might need in that appointment. Um, But they were also newcomers. For for many of those we interviewed, they had experiences as um, middle and upper middle class families in the United States. And so they were really newcomers learning about what it was like to be poor in America. And so many remarked that they were shocked by how difficult it was to get by, but also shocked by how difficult it was to access and use the really important social safety net benefits. Um, So, for instance, one volunteer, Marilyn, remarked that part of the shock was that if you're on food stamps, there are some things you can buy and some things you can't. And you have to keep track of, can you buy this with it or can you buy that? How much money is left on your card? And she said it was just really hard to stretch out those benefits, but also hard to learn these really intricate rules. And they were really surprised by this as well. Uh, Don't even small things, uh, one person, one encounter might make all the difference uh, on on whether a refugee gets ahead or falls behind. For example, minor mistakes create catastrophes with, as you said, food stamps being cut off, educational opportunities being missed, and other benefits lost. How... how, uh, aware of what is available are the the aid workers and volunteers? Yeah, that's a, a exactly right. And so um, this same family, Joseph and Georgette, um, who was helped by a team of American volunteers, including Marilyn, um, they received about, they qualified even with um, jobs working at a warehouse factory, they qualified for about $700 of food stamps monthly. But to access those food stamps, they had to sign and fill out this huge stack of recertification forms every six months. So when the forms would come in the mail, they would save this big manila envelope um, for another volunteer, Kathy, who was an American who helped them go through their mail. Um, But one time the form just never arrived. It was lost in the mail. They don't know what happened. So they didn't fill it out. Um, And when they didn't fill it out, that threatened their access to food stamps. Um, So they received a notification that their food stamps were going to be cut off. Nothing had changed with their income. Nothing had changed with their eligibility. The only thing was they hadn't received the form. Um, so then, Kathy, so luck is a factor. Um, luck is a factor. Yeah, and 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 we see even beyond luck that that. 
there are certain systems that make these mistakes and and misfortunes more likely to happen, right? So if if they didn't have to fill out a recertification form, and if there weren't so many complex rules that streamlines systems, but when you have these really complicated systems, really um, with lots of stringent hurdles, there's there's more opportunity for these mishaps and things to go wrong. Is the flood of refugees, has it abated at all? So there, I, the United Nations still has, um, there's more refugees now than at any point since World War II. And one of the challenges um, over the last few decades is that because of the nature of conflict, many refugees are not able to return home. So it used to be in the 1990s that even once um, folks fled, they were able to return home sometimes after a few years or, or maybe a longer time. But right now you have complex crises that continue. So people who left Ukraine at the beginning of the war are the war still persisting, right? Many are not able to return home. You see the same thing in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, South Sudan, many crises around the world. And so you have people who just continue to be unable to return home. And at the same time, new people who are being displaced every day. How much of a, a role does American politics play in all of this? If they hadn't been sent to Philadelphia, but rather to uh, a town in Florida, for example, would their experience have been very different? Yeah, that's a great question. So we, while we did a lot of our research in Philadelphia, we interviewed um, refugee families and, and aid workers across the country. We were interested in just that question, right? What is, does it matter where you're resettled? And so part of what we found and whether you stand out, because uh, in some parts of the country, there aren't many people of color. And then there are other parts where there are a lot, although they're often in segregated neighborhoods. Yeah. And so we found that, um, of course, it does matter if a society or a, a local area is is welcoming or not. But we found that a lot of families reported pockets of um, welcoming Americans across different contexts. Many of the volunteers um, welcomed refugees to um, small town Iowa, um, to areas in Florida, to places in New York, really across the country. Um, and even across these different contexts, um, refugees still face some of the same challenges, particularly um, in finding work that paid enough and in, in being able to access these benefits. Even across the country, complicated systems made it really hard for families to get ahead. Was one of your goals with this book to offer guidance for how activists, workers and policymakers can help refugee families make it through? Yeah, we, we really set out to learn not just what hindered families, but also what helped them. 
And so in the book, we talk about two families who made a lot of progress, Joseph and Georgette, who eventually buy a house. And they had a whole team of volunteers, 40 different American volunteers helping them. And so we found that volunteers helped them with countless things, um, giving donations, furniture, a car. Um, and these were really significant, but also helping them navigate U.S. institutions, helping them fill out those food stamp forms. Um, when they were ready to buy a house, it wasn't enough to just have enough money, but also it's a complicated system. How to buy a house in the U.S., it's, it's daunting. How do you apply for a um, approval for a mortgage. Mm. And so um, some of these volunteers really spent time navigating these systems, translating, working with real estate agents, working with the bank um, to translate across not just language, but culturally to explain the processes, but also to to sort of provide um Additional assistance, there was a lot that could go wrong and they could catch errors and prevent them from becoming bigger things. Well, I imagine that uh, most of these people have been traumatized to some degree by the, uh, the terrible things that were happening with them back home, the reason they had to leave. Uh, do they wind up? Uh, what about the four families you looked at? Have they kind of settled in and uh, gotten better? Yeah, so when we did the follow-up interviews, which were five to seven years after the families had arrived in the United States, all of the families had made gains. Um, their children were largely fluent in English, and this was that was a huge step. Hmm. So when they first arrived, um, they might have relied on translators, but later on, their children played an important role in helping them navigate institutions and translating at the bank, those kinds of things. Um, some families faced continued to face barriers, though. Um, other families, like we mentioned, Joseph and Georgette, were able to buy houses, and and um, in some families, children went to college. So these were really significant gains. And so they've all kind of struggled through. Any thinking of returning? What's the situation back at the? Uh, Dem it's weird. It's called Democratic Democratic Republic of the Congo. Yeah, so we did find, particularly when families um, faced obstacles, when they were cut off from entitlements, um, they did report that they sometimes found themselves thinking about going back home. Um, nonetheless, um, they also reported that they can that the regions they were from, many of the regions were still facing mm -hmm. instability. Some had family members that they were back in contact with. Honoria remembered and talked on the phone with friends in Uganda who faced drought and and were hung, faced hunger. And so even when she faced hardships in the U.S. and, and at times lost faith in it really in, in the promise of the country, um, she, she was reminded by the hunger that people faced back in Uganda and other countries and contexts. And so she was um, still grateful for the chances that resettlement brought her and her family. 
And I'm grateful that the two of you have been my guest on today's show. Um, I've been speaking with Blair Sackett and Annette Leroux about their book, We Thought It Would Be Heaven, Refugees in an Unequal America from the University of California Press. It's been a great pleasure. Both of you at work, I'm assuming, on new books in, on related issues. Thank you so much for having us. And that brings us to the end of our show. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more of our one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access our over 800 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, which has now far surpassed 1 million plays, is available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else that you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at WBAI.org. And before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support WBAI to keep the station coming to you and the show coming to you. We're going through a pretty rough time right now, which started with the pandemic. And, uh, well, things happen to all of where, where sometimes we aren't sure we can pay the rent or the tower bills and things like that. So we're asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by going to give to WBAI.org online right now or by calling 212-209-2950. That's give and the number to WBAI.org or 212-209-2950 because we need to help to keep bringing you this unique in-depth content information you usually don't get anywhere else. And as I mentioned earlier, anyone who uh, signs up and becomes a gives us a contribution of $50 or more in the name of London Lopate at large right now can receive a copy of the book we've been discussing, We Thought It Would Be Heaven, by Blair Sackett and Annette LaRoe. So why not make that call right now, 212-209-2950, or go online to give to WBAI.org. And you might also consider becoming a sustaining member of the station, what we call a BAI buddy, for $10, $15, $20, $25 a month, uh, as long as you want to do that, and it allows us to plan for the future. And we will say thank you with a BAI tote bag to anyone who signs up to become a BAI buddy for $10 a month or more. So if you tune in regularly to Let It Lope It at Large, why not let us know you appreciate what we do on the show by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950. We are the only station on the New York radio dial that's 100% listener-sponsored, and you can help us stay alive and thriving with your tax-deductible support. I hope you can join us again tomorrow when Lowell Bear will discuss the Codex of the Endangered Species Act.